All right, everyone, we're going to go ahead and get started tonight. Are your bellies full yet? If not, we got a few more hamburgers and hot dogs. And uh, I just want to thank everybody that cooked and everybody that served. We had so much help and uh, got stuff done quickly, so thank y'all. Uh, again, it's always good to come in and get a good bite to eat and fellowship at your tables. That's what I love about Sunday nights. Uh, the fellowship that takes place, and then we get to dig into God's Word. So I want you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 9. That's where we're going to be tonight, Joshua chapter 9. Uh, I'm excited about digging back into the book of Joshua and moving forward and seeing how God works with His children. Um, one thing we can say so far about the the book of Joshua is that it is a journey, right? It, it's not a it's not a quick thing, it, it's a journey, it's not the 100 meter dash, it's more like the two mile run, uh, it's a journey, and uh, we've seen some highs and we've seen some lows, and that's going to continue, um, because God is perfect, but His children are not, and so there's going to be some, some learning experiences, some discipling um, that's going to take place, and we're going to see some of that tonight in Joshua chapter 9, so uh, if you're already there, Joshua chapter 9... Uh, I do want to remind you um, that any of the downs, any of the windings in the past, um, that is due to the children of Israel, right? If, if they have lows, it's not God's fault they had lows. It's their fault. If there's any winding in the path or any darkness that they experience, it, it's not God's fault. It's their fault. Um, yes, there are times when they obey immediately, but as we've already seen, there are times when they delay their obedience, which is disobedience, and then there's times where they just blatantly disobey God. Uh, but one truth that we have found in the book of Joshua, one truth that never changes in the book of Joshua is that God is always faithful, right? I told you at the very beginning, you're going to hear me say that a lot, God is faithful. And tonight we're going to see, uh, we're going to see how God continues to be faithful even when his children are unfaithful. Even when his children don't get things right, God always gets it right. God is faithful. Uh, we see it in the Bible. We see it with the Israelites, but we also see it in our own lives. I don't know about you, but, but I see God's faithfulness everywhere in my life. Uh, he is always faithful to me in every situation, in every circumstance. Now in Joshua chapter 9, what we see more than anything, is deception. That's, that's what I've titled chapter 9, deception. Uh, the NIV uses the word ruse in verse 4. The King James Version uses the word wily in verse 4. But really what those words mean is deception, right? Deception. According to Merriam-Webster, the word deception means the act of causing someone to accept something as true what is actually false. That's what deception is, according to Merriam-Webster. It, it, it's causing someone to accept something as true what is actually false. And so I want you to think about that word deception because we're going to see it uh, right, right off the bat in Joshua chapter 9. So what I've done is I've broken this down into several passages. Uh, the first passage I want you to see, Joshua chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. The Bible says, now when all the kings west of the Jordan heard about these things, what things? Heard about all the things that God was doing to and through His children. And 
Listen, what was God doing? He, he was making His promises come true. The fulfillment of His promise, this is your land. This is the land I've given you. So, when all the kings west of the Jordan heard about these things, the kings in the hill country, in the western foothills, and along the entire coast of the Mediterranean Sea, as far as Lebanon, the king of the Hittites, the Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, they came together to wage war against Joshua and Israel. So what had happened? I'll tell you. What God had done to and through His children was made known to others. That, that's what happened. What God was doing to His children and through His children, everybody knew about it. Word was being spread very quickly about this band of people and their God and what was taking place. Listen, Jericho fell and Ai fell. Those were two powerful cities. And so that news spread rapidly. Well, who did this? The Israelites and their God. And so what God had done, it was being made known to everyone around you. And I want to stress here that it was God's works and it was God's name that was striking fear in these other people. Okay? It wasn't Joshua in and of himself. It wasn't the Israelites in and of themselves. It was what God was doing to and through Joshua, to and through the Israelites that was being made known. I also want to remind you that God had told His children Israel back in Deuteronomy chapter 7. You may want to make a note of that on your handout. God had already told His children way back in Deuteronomy chapter 7 not to make a treaty with anyone in Canaan. Don't forget that. God had already told them do not make a treaty with the people of Canaan. They could make treaties with people in far off lands and in other places, but they were specifically told by God, do not make a treaty with people from Canaan. And don't you know that if God said it once, their leaders reminded them that over and over again. It was like the law, the Torah, right? They, they said this stuff out loud. They said it publicly it was ingrained in their minds and in their hearts. God told them, Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 and 2, do not make a treaty with the people of Canaan. And here we go. <laughs> Joshua chapter 9, verses 3 through 8. However, when the people of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they resorted to Arus. They went as a delegation whose donkeys were loaded with worn-out sacks and old wineskins, cracked and mended. They put worn and patched sandals on their feet and wore old clothes. All the bread of their food supply was dry and moldy. Then they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and the Israelites, We have come from a distant country. Make a treaty with us. The Israelites said to the Hivites, now you may wonder, why does it say Hivites? Because Gibeon was a tribe of people that was in the Hivite country. So the Gibeonites were actually a band, a subgroup of the Hivites, okay? So don't let that confuse you. 
The Israelites said to the Hivites, perhaps you live near us. So how can we make a treaty with you? We are your servants, they said to Joshua. But Joshua asked, who are you and where do you come from? So what we see right off the bat is we see the Gibeonites deliberately used deception with Joshua and the Israelites. Listen, the Gibeonites knew exactly what they were doing. They didn't stumble upon Joshua and the Israelites. They didn't just accidentally fall into this plan. They deliberately deceived Joshua and the Israelites. They knew what they were doing. They knew why they were doing it. But notice this, and don't forget this, the Israelites knew the command of God. Make no treaty with the people of Canaan. And we see this in verse 7. Look at verse 7 again. The Israelites said to the Hivites, perhaps you live near us, so how can we make a treaty with you? Listen to me. The Israelites knew the command of God. Don't forget that. Okay? It'd be real easy just to point all the blame at the Gibeonites and act like the Israelites are just, they've been deceived. They've been tricked. The Israelites knew the command of God. I don't, I can't stress that enough. Even Joshua, what does he do? He pushes harder, doesn't he? He presses them further. Look at what he says. Who are you? It's like he's saying, who are you really? Where do you come from really? Like, like, there, there must have been red flags for Joshua to ask those kind of questions, for the Israelites to say, hey, are you sure you're not the Hivites? Are you sure you're not like our next door neighbors? And so we see deliberate deception used by Gibeon. The Israelites know the command of God. They know they're not supposed to make a treaty with people of Canaan. So what happens in verses 9 through 13? Well, the Gibeonites give them some good words. They give them some good words. They, they persuade them, right? They persuade them that this is who we are. And we've traveled a long way and, 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 and we're from a far off land. And so how and why? How and why? Do the Israelites fall in this moment of deception? The answer is in verses 14 and 15. Look at it with me. The Israelites sampled their provisions. So not only did they give them the eye test and the ear test, they even tasted their food. The Israelites sampled their provisions, but here it is, but did not inquire of the Lord. Then Joshua made a treaty of peace with them to let them live. And the leaders of the assembly ratified it by oath. Let me tell you what happens right here. It's very clear. This is not hard to interpret. The Bible is very clear. Joshua and the Israelites relied on their own senses rather than relying on God in prayer. Like I said, It'd be real easy to say those Gibeonites, those terrible people, deceiving those poor pitiful Israelites like that. Whoa, whoa, whoa. (laughs) Yeah, they did wrong by using deception. 
But what did the Israelites do? They tried to handle it themselves. They relied on their own senses. Where in this passage does it say they inquired of the Lord? Or where does it say they gathered and prayed? Does anybody's Bible say that? Because I want to read it if it does. Because mine didn't show that or say that anywhere. What it does say in verse 14 is that they did not inquire of the Lord. They did everything they could do in and of themselves to make a right decision. And they decided for themselves rather than waiting or even seeking the Lord's decision. And not only that, not only did Israel make a treaty with Gibeon, they also ratified it by oath. Now you're probably going, well, what's the big deal? What, what do you mean they ratified it by oath? Isn't that like just a promise? An oath is stronger than me and you making a promise. Like, I can promise you that I'll be here tomorrow, but guess what? I may not. <laughs> and no big deal. Right? That's not an oath, not in the Bible. An oath is more serious than that. As a matter of fact, I love the way Dr. Tony Evans explains it. Dr. Evans explains Israel had taken what is known as a self-maledictory oath. That means that if they were to break this promise of peace, then the judgment of God would fall upon them. Oaths are serious in the Bible, and they cannot be taken lightly. So, not only did they make a treaty with Gibeon, they got together and say, let's ratify it by oath. In other words, now it's not on them, it's on who? It's on us. It's on us. And so this was a big deal. Now, you might ask, what happened? Well, three days passes. Three days passes, and the Bible tells us that Joshua and the Israelites found out the truth, that the Gibeonites were, in fact, inhabitants of Canaan. They were their next-door neighbors. Now, I would love to tell you this is how Joshua found out, or this is how the Israelites found out. But guess what? We don't know. We don't know how they found out. It could have been that the Gibeonites were celebrating, right? We did it. We, we tricked them. They could have overheard that. Uh, it could have been that they went to the Lord in prayer and the Lord revealed it to them that way. But the truth is, we don't know. It doesn't tell us in Scripture. All it says is, Joshua found out. And the Israelites found out. So now I want to read what happens. The rest of the story, as Paul Harvey would say. <laughs> the rest of the story. Joshua chapter 9, beginning in verse 18. But the Israelites did not attack them. So after they found out that Gibeon deceived them, the Israelites did not attack them because the leaders of the assembly had sworn an oath to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Look at the next verse. Doesn't this sound just like... Never mind, I'm not going to go there. It says, the whole assembly grumbled against the leaders. But all the leaders answered, we have given them our oath by the Lord, the God of Israel, and we cannot touch them now. This is what we will do to them. We will let them live so that God's wrath will not fall on us for breaking the oath we swore to them. They continued, let them live, but... Let them be woodcutters and water carriers in the service of the whole assembly. So the leader's promise was to, to them was kept. 
Then Joshua summoned the Gibeonites and said, Why did you deceive us by saying, We live a long way from you, while actually you live near us? You are now under a curse. You will never be released from service as woodcutters and water carriers for the house of my God. They answered Joshua, Your servants were clearly told how the Lord your God commanded his servant Moses to give you the whole land and to wipe out all its inhabitants from before you. So we feared for our lives because of you. And that is why we did this. We are in your hands. Do to us whatever seems good and right to you. So Joshua saved them from the Israelites and they did not kill them. That day he made the Gibeonites woodcutters and water carriers for the whole assembly to provide for the needs of the altar of the Lord at the place the Lord would choose. And that is what they are to this day. Well, what an incredible passage of Scripture. Because we see something here that affects both the Israelites and the Gibeonites. Both Israel and Gibeon had to face the consequences of their actions. I want you to see that. Israel, this is God's children. But they had to face the consequences of not inquiring of Him. Okay? And Gibeon, they had to face the consequences of deception. And we see that. And once again, when things go south, what do the Israelites do? They grumble. <laughs> they grumbled against their leaders. And I, wanted to, I looked at that and I researched that. I was like, okay... Why is that included in this passage of Scripture? Why does it say they grumbled against their leaders? Why did the Israelites begin to grumble? Another word for grumble might be complain. Right? That's what grumbling is. They started complaining. So I looked at this, and I looked back at another promise that God made them. God made them a promise, right? After the debacle at Jericho... He made a promise to them that when they conquered people and they conquered cities, they could keep the plunder for themselves. You remember that? Let me tell you something about Gibeon that you might not know unless you research it. Did you know that Gibeon was one of the strongest cities in Canaan? These people were powerful. Like like they were strong. They, They were well supplied and well fortified. Yet even in that strength, even in all this wealth and all these strong men, they feared what God had done and what God was doing. And so they said, you know what? We can't fight and win this. So we better lie if we want to save our lives. And so maybe the people of Israel grumbled because now there was no plunder, right? There was no wealth to divide. Amongst the people. Uh, They would have been entitled to it. Uh, There's no doubt in my mind. That that many people had ideas. About how to move forward. Well since they lied to us. Let's kill them. What did Joshua and the leaders have to do? They had to remind them. We can't kill them. Because we swore an oath. We swore an oath that they could live. And if we go back on that oath. And we kill them. Because it was an oath sworn by us, now the judgment of God is not on Gibeon, it's on Israel. 
And so they couldn't go back. So what were the consequences? Well, here they are. It's two. Number one, Israel had to allow. They allowed the Gibeonites to live in the land with them. And you might say, well, how is that a consequence? Well, what you're going to see in just one more chapter, maybe two, is you're going to see that Israel has to protect Gibeon from, a, from an invasion because they've sworn to let them live, which means they can't just stand by and let them die. They've basically sworn protection. And so that's a consequence. Now they have to embrace this people in the land, live with them in the land. And so that's a consequence of not inquiring of the Lord in prayer. The Gibeonites, it's very clear what their consequence is. Now instead of being a strong, fortified people who stand alone, what are they? They're slaves. A word used here is servants. They become servants for the house of the Lord as woodcutters and water carriers. Dr. David Jeremiah says this, Knowing that influence tends to trickle down, there was little risk of intermarriage with the people of Israel if the Gibeonites were in a subservient role. Joshua also involved these people in the worship of the Lord by preparing the wood for Israel's sacrifices and by carrying the water used in their cleansing rituals. Maybe Joshua was hoping this would influence them toward the one true God. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us what Joshua was thinking. Okay? It doesn't say, well, Joshua thought this. But if you look at his actions and how he used them... Dr. Jeremiah says you can, you can clearly see that Joshua was embracing them not just as slaves but as servants for who? For the Lord. And so Dr. Jeremiah makes an assumption here that Joshua may have been trying to embrace them and introduce them to the one true God for salvation. Again, that's not said. We don't see Joshua saying that. We don't see that written. Again, this is just an assumption based on how he handled the situation. Dr. Warren Wearsby is another one of my, my favorite pastors, and I love his set of commentaries. This is what Dr. Warren Wearsby says about it. He says, There is no evidence in all of Scripture that the descendants of the Gibeonites ever created any problems for the Jews. So if you go back through the Scriptures, if you look anywhere in the Scriptures, you will not find anywhere where the Gibeonites caused any problems for the Israelites, for the Jews. That's what Dr. Wearsby says. As a matter of fact, he goes on to say this. In later years, the Gibeonites were called Nethanim. Nethanim. N-E-T-H-I-N-I-M. Which means the given ones. That's what their name means in Hebrew. So the Gibeonites in Hebrew became the Nethanim, which means the given ones. The fact that over 500, and I did not know this until I researched it, the fact that over 500 Nethanim returned to Jerusalem after the Babylonian captivity suggests that these people became devoted servants of the Lord. And you can find that 
in the book of Ezra. In Ezra chapter 2 and in Ezra chapter 8, it references the same group of people that Joshua embraced. And yes, he, he, he made them subservience, but he made them subservience doing what? Helping Israel worship the Lord. And so again, the overflow, right? The effects of what was done from what we see in Scripture, actually, it helped. It became a positive thing. And so, I, 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 I titled this chapter, when I was, you know, outlining and preparing, I titled this chapter, Deception, okay? And, and we know what deception is. I've already showed you that. I've already told you that. And Merriam-Webster, it's when someone tries to call some, you know, when someone tries to call someone to accept something as true, what is blatantly false, that, that's not right. Deception is not right. But let me tell you something. My God is more powerful than any human deception. And my God can take human deception and turn it into something good. And I believe that's what happened here. Again, if all you do is read Joshua chapter 9, you don't get the whole picture. You got to go backwards. You got to look at Deuteronomy. What did God command? The Israelites knew that command. Do not make a treaty with the people of Canaan. They knew that. But it also reminds me of who the true enemy is. Who's the true enemy of God? Satan. Which means who's your true enemy? Satan. What does Satan do? He did it in Genesis chapter 3. He deceives. He deceives. That's what he does. He wants you to accept something as true, what is actually false. He, he does it all day long, every day. He is the deceiver. He is the father of lies. Okay? But what I see in Scripture, Genesis, all the way through, what I see is that my God, my God is powerful enough, right? And strong enough. And my God has a purpose and plan for everything, even the deception that we fall into. I see something in this passage of Scripture that maybe you don't see. And it's the last thing I want to leave with you. What I see is when we sin, we must confess. And we must turn toward God. And I believe we see that in Joshua chapter 9. I believe we see that. Joshua didn't try to hide behind the fact, right? He didn't try to hide behind the fact that Gibeon deceived us. They're wrong. We're right. Joshua owned up to it. He said, you know what? They deceived us, but we, we made an oath with them. In other words, we stumbled too. So I believe what we see in this passage of Scripture is we see sin. And we see confession and we see a turning toward God. That's what we see. We see God's faithfulness even when His children are unfaithful. Why is God faithful to us when we are unfaithful? Why is God faithful to us? I mean, I'm I'm asking the question. I may not have the answer. He's always faithful. That's right. That's a good answer. He's always faithful. His faithfulness doesn't depend upon us. When God makes a promise, He keeps it. You've heard me say that? When God makes a promise, He keeps it. When we think of God's promises, what do we always think about? The good stuff, right? The eternal life, right? 
the blessings, good food, right? Wealth. We, th- we think about all these good promises, but also when God makes a promise that if you sin, you'll face the consequences of your sin, He keeps that promise too, right? He keeps that promise too. So God is faithful always. He's always faithful. His faithfulness doesn't depend upon us. But what I love about God's faithfulness is that it always comes, right? It always comes to a good end. It always comes to a good end. Again, what do I mean by that? I I see positives all in this chapter, right? Israel, they should have inquired of the Lord. That's what they should have done, okay? They should have said, hey guys, let's pray about this before we go any further with these people. My personal belief is if they would have done that, Gibeon would have been wiped out. Because God would have told them, they live right next door to you. These are people of Canaan. They are Hivites. God would have said, no, don't make a treaty with them. You know what to do. I believe God would have said that had they prayed, but they didn't pray. They didn't inquire of the Lord. So, so they, they sinned. But again, what do we always say about God's grace? God's grace is greater. Isn't that what we say? We got shirts made, right? It says, you know, grace, and it has the big fish sign. And I never never get, I always get confused with which way that fish sign should go. But anyway, we got these shirts made that says God's grace is greater than our sin, right? Do we believe that? We ought to. We see it. God's grace is greater than the sin. Because what, what happened? God took this situation, and from what we see in Scripture, and I'm not talking about just Joshua, I'm talking about Ezra. I'm talking about if you read the history, what we see is that God saved more than the Israelites. He, he saved some Gentiles too. That's what I see. Again, I can't get past Ezra chapter 2 and Ezra chapter 8 because it mentions them by name, the Gibeonites. Right? And so I love this passage of Scripture. Don't forget this. Satan's enemy has three goals. And Jesus told us what Satan's three goals are. Anybody? John chapter 10. The enemy has come to do what? Steal, kill, and destroy. That's what he wants to do. Steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus, on the other hand, says, I have come so that you may have what? Life and have it to the full. Have it abundantly. Right? We we got to keep our eyes. We got to keep our eyes on the Lord, and we got to say, "Is it enough just to know His commands?" No, it's not enough just to know His commands. We need to obey His commands. And I'm gonna tell you, in my life, the only way I can truly obey God's commands is when I'm communicating with Him. That's the truth I've learned in my own life. I don't have the power in and of myself to obey God. You want to know why? Because this flesh, this flesh, I, I am a selfish person. I mean, if you, if you really got to the, to the meat and bones of your life, would you, would you be able to say that about you? Aren't you selfish? Now, somebody said tonight when we were cooking, it's like Burger King, have it your way right away. We were cooking those burgers and flipping those burgers. Was that you, Jonathan, said that? Yeah, buddy. We're going to give it to them. They're going to have it their way right away. And at the heart of who we are as human beings, we are. We are sinners. What does Paul say in Romans? 
He said, we are all sinners. There's no one who does good, not even one. Right? So at the heart of who I am, I'm a selfish person. I'm a sinner. And there's no way, just by me knowing God's commands, that I can keep them. You know what I need? I need the Spirit of God inside of me. I need the Spirit of God stirring me. Not only showing me His commands, but showing me the results of His commands when I walk in them. Like like saying, hey, this is the right way. And let me tell you why this is the right way. Right? And, And so, I'm so thankful that when I repent of my sin, when I turn from my sin and turn to God, when I confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, listen, the Spirit don't just come and walk beside me. The Spirit of God indwells me, right? Lives in me. Lives in my heart. Lives in my mind. And and lights my path for me. Shows me the way. Guides me along the way. Convicts me of my sin, right? Convicts me of my sin so that I will continue to repent and continue to turn to God. And... There's some sad things we see in this passage of Scripture, but man, there's some good things we see in this passage of Scripture too. Um, You know, most of everything I'm going to tell you about Joshua, it's thumbs up. It's going to be positive. But what did I tell you at the very beginning about Joshua? He is not perfect. And we need to be careful when we're digging into Scripture and studying the Word that we don't immortalize some of these men and some of these women in the Bible. No one in the Bible other than Jesus Christ is perfect. Everyone in the Bible other than Jesus Christ is a sinner who needs a Savior. And Joshua is not excluded from that. And, and so we see that in this passage. But I'm thankful. I'm thankful that what we see in Joshua is someone who when he makes a mistake, he owns it. And then he gets with God and gets it right. 